At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Can we talk something else? Can, can we talk about something else? ocean. It took me 35 years to finally lay eyes on it. Before that, I only knew ponds, rivers, lakes, puddles in comparison, but just as mysterious and creepy in their own way. I swim, I fish, but I'm never at peace around deep water. It's bothersome. Standing beside or floating above it strikes fear in me. That same fear I feel when looking over the edge of a balcony. That same impending sense of doom I get when my son gazes dreamily at the window of a plane. A window that I'm certain is about to burst, then suck him screaming out into the clouds. At least from a height I can see what's down below. With deep water, you just don't know what the fuck is going on down there. And what you're signaling with your stupid kicking legs or dopey wooden paddle. This is a neurotic concern, I know. I also fear moving water. I hate the idea of undertoes, riptides, and rip currents. Invisible forces waiting to suck you under and tumble the skin from your body with sticks and rocks and dirt. The beach is a beautiful place, depending on if there's people there or not, of course. I had the pleasure of standing alone by the ocean for my first encounter. It was an overcast and windy day in April. I marveled at its power and immensity for a while, sipping from my can of oversized beer. It wasn't until I walked in and let the waves soak the bottom of my tightly rolled jogging pants that I felt it. The pull. The first hint of how old, blind, and dangerous that beast is the first indication that I was alone with a killer. A provider of life from a distance, sure. But up close, that thing is hungry. 
Ravenous, even. The further away you get from shore, the more sinister it gets. You begin to feel an icy cold reaching out to lick your ankles, like tendrils of some invisible thing looking for a taste of you. You feel the tug of the currents, alive in their own way, as they try to pull you a little further out, a little deeper, maybe. Soon all of this deadly foreplay serves to remind one of that crushing blackness further down, where the light doesn't go, where the malformed and ancient things wander the abyss, mouths ever open, always on the hunt. Things like our own fish, alone on the coldest plains of hell, stumbling blind in search of a way to curb that feeling he gets, a way to make the voices slow down, maybe even stop, the silent voices of the angels that goad him forward, the angels that never intercede. Welcome to Dark Topic, I'm your host, Jack Luna. This is episode 17, The Silent Angels of Albert Fish. Final, a finale that you'll find to be more of a wrap-up than the production part one was. Let's hit this thing over the head and have ourselves a cookout. More than half a decade has passed since little Gracie Bud disappeared behind the gray suit coat of a kindly old man who charmed his way into her family's good graces then stole their most prized possession. Albert Fish, the man responsible, has yet to be identified by investigators. A number of men have arisen as suspects, but not the Fish. He's evaded capture, even suspicion, since making off with the ten-year-old, tucked under his slender arm like a loaf of bread. By now, she'd be fifteen. If she is out there somewhere... She's nearly old enough to make it on her own. This is the hope of many, and the thought that finally fades her name from the news cycle. It's 1934 now, and there's plenty to distract from this frostbitten case. An upstart politician named Adolf Hitler has all but seized control of the German government, and there are rumors about his tactics and ambitions swirling everywhere. The American Great Depression is in full swing, and cities of the nation are in disarray. Shantytowns have popped up all over, so-called Hoovervilles, monikered after the presiding commander-in-chief, Herbert. The tenements of which the Grey Man previously hunted are slowly becoming abandoned. Their hallways, devoid of the sweet sounds of children, are now filled with the retching of hobos. People can't afford food, much less luxuries such as repainting their homes or businesses, so a man that usually occupies his hours painting houses is forced instead to find other pursuits, to keep busy. Albert Fish pours over the newspapers, in particular the classifieds, keeping himself in the know and immensely entertained by sending ugly letters to people. It's in this year of chaos and misery that Albert Fish reads an odd story in the news. A housewife named Adele Miller had followed the Gracie Bud case closely as anybody back in 1928 when it was still on the front page of every newspaper on the East Coast. She's astonished when six years later she finds a picture of a pretty, young, dark-haired girl in the paper that looks to her, at least, like an older version of Grace Budd. 
At the time, it was still widely believed that Grace was alive and kicking somewhere, having only been kidnapped. In these kinder times, animals like Albert Fish were still something of a zoological rarity, an oddity for pulp magazines and scary stories. So people held out hope, and Adele Miller, thinking she might have solved the case, cuts out the picture of the girl and sends it to Grace's mother, Deliah Budd. Deliah, you may remember, is anything but reliable when it comes to identifying somebody. She instantly believes the girl in the photo to be her Gracie, and proceeds to take the picture to Detective William King, the missing persons bureau detective still in charge of the case. King, a hard-nosed sort of detective, reticent to ever give up on finding the girl, has kept the case alive by planting false stories in newspapers. The picture Deliah brings him probably isn't the girl, but he leaks the story anyway. The newspapers, remembering that Gracie Budd's picture and the odd story of her disappearance with a strange older gentleman can empty a newsstand in mere minutes, get hold of the story and run wild with speculation. Have they found the missing girl? Is she still alive, healthy, and lovely as that wonderful black-and-white photo on page 1A? The answer, of course, is no. Florence Swinney, a 16-year-old, identifies herself as the girl in the picture from the Daily Mirror newspaper. A bit of disappointment follows this revelation, and all the involved parties resume the lives they've been living before this bit of excitement. All, that is, save a functionally unemployed house painter who has nothing but time to read the paper. It takes him about six months to write Delia Budd his own letter. It arrives November 12th mailed just the day before from the Grand Central Station post office. Delia, barely able to read, hands the letter to her son, Edward. Edward reads the letter quietly, his mother probably nagging him to tell her just what the hell it entails. He doesn't say a word as he reads, though his face drains of color in the process. Edward fights off his distraught mother and exits the home once finished. He stumbles down the street, holding the letter behind him like one might hold a bag of dog shit. When he finally reaches Detective King's office and hands the pages over, they are wet from the perspiration of his palm. Here's what he didn't want his mother to hear. It's with reluctance when I say that Fish was a talented writer, though it's not so obvious here as it is later. The first half of this letter certainly sounds like a work of creative fiction. I'm sure I'm not the only one who believes he's imparting personal experience through the character he refers to in the beginning. Quote. My dear Mrs. Budd, in 1894, a friend of mine shipped as a deckhand on the steamer Tacoma, Captain John Davis. They sailed from San Francisco to Hong Kong, China. On arriving there, he and two others went ashore and got drunk. When they returned, the boat was gone. At that time, there was a famine in China. Meat of any kind was one to three dollars a pound. So great was the suffering among the very poor that all children under twelve were sold for food in order to keep others from starving. A boy or girl under fourteen was not safe in the street. You can go in any shop and ask for steak, chops, or stew meat. Part of the naked body of a boy or girl would be brought out and just what you wanted cut from it. A boy or girl's behind, which is the sweetest part of the body and is sold as veal cutlets, brings the highest price. John stayed there so long that he acquired a taste for human flesh. On his return to New York, he stole two boys, 
He took them to his home, stripped them naked, and tied them up in a closet, and then burned everything they had on. Several times every day and night he spanked them, tortured them, to make their meat good and tender. First, he killed the eleven-year-old boy because he had the fattest ass and, of course, the most meat on it. Every part of his body was cooked and eaten except for the head, bones, and guts. He was roasted in the oven, all of his ass, boiled, broiled, fried, and stewed. The little boy was next, and he went the same way. At that time, I was living at 409 East 100th Street. He told me so often how good human flesh was, and I made up my mind to taste it. On June 3, 1928, I called on you at 406 West 15th Street and brought you pot cheese and strawberries. We had lunch. Grace sat on my lap and kissed me. I made up my mind to eat her. On the pretense of taking her to a party, you said yes, she could go. I took her to an empty house in Westchester I had already picked out. When we got there, I told her to remain outside. She picked wildflowers. I went upstairs and stripped all my clothes off. I knew if I did not, I would get her blood on them. When all was ready, I went to the window and called her. Then I hid in the closet until she was in the room. When she saw me all naked, she began to cry and tried to run down the stairs. I grabbed her, and she said she would tell her mama. First I stripped her naked. How did she kick, bite, and scratch? I choked her to death, then cut her in small pieces so I could take the meat to my rooms, cook, and eat it. How sweet and tender her little ass was roasted in the oven. It took me nine days to eat her entire body. I did not fuck her though I could have if I wished. She died a virgin. End quote. The immediate desire of everybody involved is to discredit the letter entirely. What it details is just too awful. But certain details included in the letter make Detective King all but positive that it had to have come from Grace's abductor, and now, possible murderer. First, there's the address, which the man gave as 409 East 100th Street, which is right in the area the police suspected, near the Western Union office from which his telegram to Edward was sent the day before Grace's abduction. Second, King compared the handwriting on the Western Union receipt to the handwriting in the letter sent to Deliah Budd, and found they looked fairly similar. Both, perhaps, had that sort of shaky calligraphy you can only really manage when you're suffering from a dozen sewing needles shoved up into your grundle. King sets out to find the letter writer, his first step being to check the address on the stationery used to write and send it. The envelope the buds received included initials, NYPCBA, and a Lexington Avenue address that King tracks to the New York Private Chauffeurs Benevolent Association. His original suspicion is that one of the employees of this place is the culprit, so he talks to the head of the union, Arthur Ennis. Ennis shares that, yeah, that's our stationery, but I don't recognize the handwriting. He goes the distance for the detective, comparing the handwriting to the written registration forms for every member of the union. They come up empty, meaning that most likely the guy either doesn't work for this benevolent chauffeur's association, or they don't have the handwriting on file. This is no surprise, as the benevolent chauffeurs sound like a group of good heads, 
the types who maybe only show aggression when competing against the illustrious lads of the lavatories at the summer softball tourney. They're our rivals. King has Ennis drum up an emergency meeting of this gentlemanly union, where he asks for their help in tracking down the stationery. But generally, these folks can't really help him with anything other than making him feel comfortable. The meeting ends, and a sheepish young man named Lee Sikowski approaches King. He sort of rubs his neck, you know, and tells King he actually stole some of that stationery a few months back. He just didn't want to say so in front of everybody. He tells King he left some of the stationery at a rooming house on Lexington that he was living in, and King heads there next. He finds no record of a Howard, Fish's alias, or anybody matching his description at this place. He goes back to Sikowski, who tells him, Oh shit, yeah, I remember I was also living at a place on 200 East 52nd Street when I stole that stationery. Room 7, as a matter of fact. And King heads there, post-haste. He talks to the landlady, Frieda Schneider, who tells him that, yes, they had a frail, older-looking guy with a mustache living there. But his name was not Howard. It was Fish. Albert Fish. She goes on to share that Fish doesn't really live there anymore, as the detective furiously jots down notes. This Fish had moved out a few months back, but was probably going to return in mid-December to pick up a check his son was expected to send. King checks in to Fish's old room, room number 7, and begins a round-the-clock stakeout that lasts well into the next month. In the meantime, he looks into Fish's son, who he finds out works for the Civilian Conservation Corporation. He gets the boss there to agree to send him an early warning when the new paychecks are sent out. That's December 4th. King waits around for his suspect, as patient as any fisherman has ever been. But the bobber never dips. The hole, apparently, is deserted. For now. On December 13th, King breaks his surveillance to go to a meeting at the NYPD headquarters. But as soon as he arrives, the landlady calls the office. She tells him that Fish, incredibly, has arrived at the apartment. King asks her to stall for time, to keep the guy there while he tries to get back across town. She agrees. King rushes over and finds her having tea with a decrepit-looking man, wearing a mismatched three-piece suit, an overcoat, and a bowler. King asks him if he's Albert Fish, and Fish, not missing a beat, pops out of his chair and goes for the detective with a razor blade he pulls out of his pocket. It's probably surprising, but Fish is over 60, and King's an NYPD detective. He lays a beating on the deceptively strong old bastard, venting the frustration of having sat up tensely waiting for the doorknob to turn for weeks. He gives Fish that full old-school noir detective treatment and follows it up with a typically corny one-liner, I've got you now. Fish is in the net. King drags him back downtown to the NYPD headquarters and conducts the first interrogation. He shows Fish the letter, and Fish basically shrugs and says, Yeah, I sent it. He also admits to sending the telegram to the Buds before Grace's disappearance in 1928, but denies having anything to do with the girl's death. Nobody mentioned death, says the detective. King threatens to drag him into a lineup in front of the Bud family, and Fish, realizing that this would do him in, cops to the crime. He admits to killing Grace and Winchester the same day, the same afternoon, in fact, that he kidnapped her. 
He shares that he initially wanted to just kill Ed after taking him to the abandoned building of which he would claim to be his home. His plan was to overpower and bind him, then cut off his penis and leave him to bleed to death, much like he'd done to the poor, mentally disabled man years previous. But when Fish went to the Bud House and saw how young Ed was taller and much stronger than him, he hesitated. Willie Corman was added to the equation too shortly after, and he almost gave up on the plan altogether. But he mulled it over and figured, well, he had the element of surprise and, as he told King, some experience in this sort of thing. Fish's plans for Ed and Willie necessitated the purchase of his instruments of hell, an enamel pail, a cleaver, a saw, and a butcher's knife, some of which he bought at a pawn shop. Fish arrived at the Bud residence, just as they were returning from Mass. Delia offered him lunch, and he decided to stay and wait for the boys to return as they were at Willie's place, preparing for their new job. His old eyes then lighted on Grace, decked out in her Sunday best, and he decided that he had to have her. He threw together a last-minute plan, plying the girl with candy and money and feeding the Bud family a story about Anissa's birthday party. In retrospect, he tells King, it was surprising how willing the family was to let him depart with their daughter in tow. He took her to the L, an elevated train that used to run in New York, which some of you might remember from Spider-Man 2, that since has been demolished. Several train transitions take them to Van Cortland Park, and from there, Fish buys the girl a one-way ticket, and a round-trip ticket for himself, to Winchester. Grace thoroughly enjoys the 20-minute drive upstate into the country. She spends most of the time riveted by how lush and green the view outside the train is. Her entire life till then has been little more than the dull brick and concrete of tenement living. Fish, so excited to get to his business, almost leaves his rattling bag of death on the train. Fortunately, Grace reminds him about his parcel before they disembark. She's in high spirits as they make the short walk down to Sawmill River Drive and up a steep hill to Wisteria Cottage. It's three in the afternoon, and the cottage is completely abandoned. He probably feeds her a line about how his niece and all her guests are going to arrive in a bit, but they'll be alone for a while before then. The cottage sits in complete isolation, bordered on all sides by trees. Any passerby will have a hard time seeing in the windows, if they pass by at all. Grace is enraptured by the seemingly endless green of this remote place in Winchester. There are flowers, you see growing right up out of the ground here. You don't even have to buy them from anybody. She sets herself to picking the flowers, and Fish goes inside to get ready. He grabs a paint pail on the way in. Upstairs, Fish strips naked to prevent his clothes from getting bloody. He sets out his tools and then calls for Grace to come upstairs. She probably tells him something like, Coming! And when he hears her reach the second floor, he steps outside. She looks at the naked old man standing in the hallway. The skin of his genitals is a patchwork of scarred flesh and new wounds from his self-flagellation. She stands stunned for a moment before screaming, I'll tell Mama, and trying to run. She doesn't get far. He drags her into the room and asphyxiates her, strangling her and kneeling on her chest until she dies. She does her best to fight him off, but she's small, and he's everywhere at once. He cuts her head off after her body goes limp and uses the paint can he brought upstairs to catch the blood. 
He strips the headless body and throws the clothes into a nearby closet before dumping the can of blood at the window. Six years from then, in the NYPD headquarters, King asks Fish if he raped the girl, to which Fish repeats the claim from his letter. No, she died a virgin. Fish disassembles Grace's body, cutting it in half of the navel. He takes the head out to the outhouse, planning on throwing it in another latrine, but decides it would be disrespectful. He leaves it on the outhouse floor instead, covered in leaves and paper. In this first recitation of the crime, Fish tells King that he stored the halves of the girl's body in the closet, then cleaned himself up and went home. Roughly an hour had passed since they arrived in Winchester. He comes back the next day, he says, and tosses the girl's remains over a wall in the woods, along with his knives. He never mentions cannibalism, the central theme of his letter to Delia. All right, everybody, Badlands Food. I've been thinking about getting a dog. With my little family, we're about to introduce a dog, I believe, at some point here. And I have an interest in how we're going to be treating said dog. And it occurs to me, you know, that many dogs suffer from health issues. And with Badlands Food, actress Catherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation says she's seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health. She's looking at their food. What she discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that by just adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. It caught my attention, and as I'm about to uh, get a dog, I think that I'm going to uh, use this service, so I thought I'd share it with the audience as well. Uh, I know many of you have dogs. If you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash darktopic and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash dark topic to check it out. Badlandsfood.com. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward with each new idea innovation, and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. King takes a host of detectives and fish up to Winchester to go over the crime scene and find what they can of Grace. It's dark when they arrive, and the officers follow Fish around with flashlights as he reenacts the crime. He comes off as proud, even pleased with himself, as he leads them through the girl's last moments, the moments after as well. In the dark of the outhouse, King finds a child's skull. It's clear Fish isn't fucking around at this point, and the local authorities, who should be responsible for the murder investigation in this district, are called in. By nine that same night, Wisteria cabin is full of police and surrounded by reporters. The officers hunt through the night, finding Grace's bones scattered throughout the woods. They also find a saw and a cleaver, though Fish's butcher knife is nowhere to be found. 
Detectives are most certainly struck by how surreal this scene is. Here they are, out in the beauty of this late evening, under a blanket of stars, collecting the pieces of a little girl at the direction of an old man who could have been her grandfather. The mood is somber, only lit in any way by the grey flesh of Albert Fish that seems almost radiant in the dusky glow of a near full moon, his eyes appraising the horror of what he's done like a proud architect of something he knows will be timeless, and of which could never be replicated unless another like him is sent from the depths above. With specific and unnatural intentions, only a handful of souls will ever be capable of bringing to fruition. The Bud family is called in to identify Fish, and Delia isn't the first person to positively ID somebody for once. Her son Edward sees Fish and shouts, You dirty old bastard! before having to be restrained by the cops when he lunges for the man. Fish makes a half-assed show of pretending he doesn't know the Bud family, but he gives up that he knows Albert, the father, during interrogation. All the while he's being questioned, he's direct and matter-of-fact about everything, coming off as mostly bored by the proceedings. More of Grace's bones are dug up by Wisteria Cottage, and all the while the newspapers try to come up with a fitting moniker for New York City's most strange and horrific animal. They call him the Ogre of Murder Lodge, the aged thrill killer, the orgiastic fiend, modern bluebeard, and the Brooklyn vampire. But the one that sticks, the one that withstands the test of time, is the werewolf of Wisteria. Photos of the werewolf circulate across the nation, and witnesses start coming out of the woodwork to link him to other crimes. Beatrice Keel's attempted kidnapping is linked to him, and soon Fish finds himself facing murder counts for the deaths of Francis McDonnell and Billy Gaffney. A man named Jeremy Eisman comes forward with a similar story, telling of how Fish approached him ten years earlier, when he was sixteen. Fish approached Eisman in a public park, offering him an apprenticeship as a house painter. Eisman was unemployed and agreed to the offer. He followed Fish to Staten Island by train, where they walked on foot to an abandoned, isolated house. Just like with Grace, he told Eisman to hang around outside for a moment while he went inside to get things ready. Eisman agreed, and Fish went in. But while Eisman was standing around, an elderly black man approached him and ominously spoke, saying this, quote, I see many kids go into that house, but none of them ever came out. End quote. Eisman took the hint and bailed, running straight to the police with Fish's description. When he came forward ten years later, and the description matched, the police knew he wasn't just making up a story to get attention, as previously deduced. He wasn't the only one who came to police for a second time with information about Albert Fish. Joseph Meehan, who'd come forward in 1927 after young Billy Gaffney vanished out of his tenement in the hands of the boogeyman, saw Fish's picture in the paper and contacted the police again. Meehan had been the train driver who'd seen a crying boy wearing nothing but shorts and an undershirt in February in the company of an odd older man on the train. Meehan and Eisman's testimonies, amongst others, created a vast framework of circumstantial evidence connecting Fish to his various other crimes, but not enough to prove beyond the shadow of a doubt that he committed them. Fish, meanwhile, roundly denied all the charges against him, despite his own confessions and the mounting evidence. On December 27th of 1934, 
Fish's last year as a free man and his 64th on Earth. He was charged with the murder of 8-year-old Francis McDonald, the policeman's son from Richmond County, who'd been found strangled with his own suspenders so badly they cut into his flesh. Though this is surely a drop in the paint bucket when it comes to the gray man's crimes, it's enough to go forward, and a trial date is set. It was a foregone conclusion that Fish was going down for the murder of Grace Budd. There were no factual questions about the absence of his guilt, and the trial at this point was something as a matter of course, but there still lingered the question of his sanity. While it may not be perfectly obvious that Albert Fish was absolutely, undoubtedly a first-ballot Hall of Fame fiend, the courts had to establish whether he possessed the faculties to judge between right and wrong. No matter what happened, he was going to spend the rest of his life incarcerated, but New York State wouldn't execute an insane person. The logic behind that being that they're fucking insane. How do we even know that they know why we're killing them for what they did? To grossly oversimplify it, it would be like burning down a tree because one of its branches fell and killed somebody during a rainstorm. But we'll leave the legal intricacies to the professionals. What matters here is what the head shrinkers found once they started poking around inside Albert Fish. James Dempsey took over the role defending the indefensible after Fish fired his first lawyer. Though he played like he wasn't interested in his own defense, or even the trial or his crimes, Fish still wrote his son a pretty positive letter after Dempsey was assigned him. Quote, I now have a high-grade man who knows every trick in the book. Dempsey, a former DA of Winchester County, where Grace was murdered, immediately brought in two alienists, an old-school term for psychiatrists specifically tasked with assessing a defendant's sanity. Eli Jalief and Frederick Wertheim. Funnily enough, the German-born Wertheim would one day go on to crusade against comic books for allegedly lowering the moral standards of Americans. He and Fish got along swimmingly, pardon the relentless puns. Over the course of hours of psychoanalysis, Wertheim got deeper into Fish than even Fish had gotten into himself. No small accomplishment, given the man's proclivities with sewing needles. Their relationship was such that Fish wasn't afraid of sharing even the most sordid parts of his life and crimes with Wertheim. Wertheim later said of his conversations with the so-called werewolf of hysteria, this, quote, Fish's life was one of unparalleled perversity. There was no known perversion that he did not practice, and practiced frequently. Fish clarified and added to his story about Grace Bud in a second confession. He told Wertheim he'd been obsessed with cannibalism for some time and tried drinking Grace's blood from the paint bucket, but it had made him sick. Instead, he'd butchered four pounds of meat off her stomach and buttocks, as well as her ears and nose. He brought these home with him, along with the butcher's knife they never found at Wisteria Cabin. The thrill was so extreme that he spontaneously ejaculated several times on the train ride home. He used the meat to make a stew, along with potatoes, carrots, and bacon. He ate the stew and masturbated constantly for the next several days as he did so, until it finally ran out. The meat, that is. He was disappointed when the nose and ears were too gristly, so he just threw those away. To quote Wertheim during his analysis of fish, quote, His state of mind while he described these things in minute detail was a peculiar mixture. He spoke in a matter-of-fact way, like a housewife describing her favorite methods of cooking. You had to remind yourself that this was a little girl that he was talking about, but at times his tone of voice and facial expression indicated a kind of satisfaction and ecstatic thrill. 
I said to myself, however you define the medical and legal borders of sanity, this certainly is beyond that border. Fish eventually admitted to raping more than 100 children and murdering at least 15 to Wertheim. All of this information was put into reports, which in addition to the admission of cannibalism, made Dempsey positive a finding of insanity was guaranteed. During the trial, he'd add that lead poisoning from work as a house painter also contributed to Fish's madness. Given that lead poisoning leads to sudden, violent episodes, that's not exactly impossible. Fish's trial was absolutely chaotic, so much so that the officers had to stack more than a dozen deep at the courthouse entrance to keep the crowd from losing its shit and ruining the proceeding. Dempsey focused on Fish's tragic childhood and upbringing during the trial, making little mention of the murders. The prosecution, of course, did basically the opposite, never letting up on the gory details. Dempsey's strategy was to make Fish look as insane as possible, which likely wasn't the hardest thing to do. Even just sitting in court, Fish looked like a dirty, disheveled homeless person in a tattered old suit, his deep dead eyes sullying everything they passed over. His children took the stand and spoke about his weird obsession with eating raw meat and how he tried to make them eat it too, as well as the incidents with the gore-smeared paddle and the invisible black cat he was always chasing around the house. They also spoke about how he was a decent and devoted grandfather who liked to dote on his grandchildren, though now at least some of them must have been wondering how far that doting had gone. Dempsey brought in a one Dr. Roy Duckworth, who treated fish after his arrest in 1934. Duckworth testified that they'd found 29 large sewing needles in Fish's groin, some of which had been in there so long that erosion had set in. In March, the judge kicked all the women out of the court for several days while Fish's perversions were examined in detail. A woman recounted letters Fish had written to her, claiming to be interested in a wife who would readily spank him, even going so far as to meet her under an alias. He'd sent a letter ahead telling her the man, who was actually just him, enjoyed being spanked and violently, and that he was a sort of test subject to measure how good of a swinging arm she had. She sent him away because she was worried this man was dangerous. When she hit him to the point where she felt she could not hit him any harder, he'd ask for more, looking as though he enjoyed it. This prompted her to get the police involved. They set up a sting to corral the obviously disturbed and possibly dangerous man, but he never showed. Women weren't allowed in the courtroom for any part of Wertheim's testimony, which delved into Fish's past and his accounts of cannibalism, rape, murder, and torture of children. Wertheim really laid it on, trying to hammer home just how nuts Fish was to get him closer to being deemed insane. The entire setup in the courtroom was surreal. Basically, you had the prosecution on one side trying to convince the jury that he did all of this awful, insane shit, but he was pretty close to sane, all things considered. The defense, on the other hand, was tasked with making the client look as helpless to dole out harm as a rabid dog in a schoolyard. The end result was that you had exchanges like this between the prosecution and their witness, a doctor who'd seen Fish during a brief incarceration in 1930. Quote, Is it a common thing, doctor, for a man to drink urine and eat human feces? Doctor, It's not as uncommon as you think. I know of successful people, artists, teachers, financiers, who have the same perversion. Really? Yes, I know individuals prominent in society, one individual in particular that we all know, who regularly uses it as a side dish in his salad. End quote. 
that brings new meaning to uh, to toss salad. <laughs> Sounds like something that guy from Sword and Scale might order. Fish says little in defense of his own insanity during the trial, the best statement to that effect being a quote of him from Wertheim's report. Fish claims that he couldn't have been wrong to kill these children. Any murder this profane, this horrible, this unthinkable, there's no way God would allow it to happen if it wasn't supposed to happen. And remember, Albert Fish often found himself talking to God. He said, if there was any objection in heaven to what he did on earth, the angels would come down and stay his hand like in the story of Isaac. They'd open their mouths and tell him to stop. But Albert Fish's angels never said a word to him. Fish is found guilty and sane, likely by a jury ready to be as absolutely fucking done with that trial as soon as possible. He tells a reporter that he's disappointed that he didn't get Matawan, the insane asylum he would have been sentenced to otherwise. In the days after the verdict is delivered, Fish confesses to four-year-old Billy Gaffney's murder in a letter to Dempsey. He meets New York District Attorney Walter Ferris in the warden's office and details the crime. Fish took the boy on the train to Astoria, to a dumping ground on Riker Avenue near a house Fish had once been hired to paint. He stripped the four-year-old naked and tied his hands and feet, gagging him with a rag he found in the dump. He burned the boy's clothes and threw away his shoes, then left the kid there until the next afternoon, alive and weeping, alone with the trash and scavengers of the night. This was in February, remember, and the boy was naked and outside. Fish brought back tools and a cat of nine tails that proceeded to torture and mutilate the boy until he died. Before the end, Fish would gouge his eyes, whip him until his skin bled, cut off his ears and nose, and slice his mouth open from ear to ear. Finally, he cut into the boy's stomach with a knife and drank blood from the open wound. After the little boy died, he sliced the body up into pieces, putting most of Gaffney into old potato sacks weighted down with rocks. What didn't go in the bags was Gaffney's nose, ears, some of his stomach, his genitals, and chunks of his buttocks and thighs. He wrapped these in paper like a butcher to take home with him. The rest he threw into pools of fetid water along the road to North Beach. That night, Fish roasted Billy Gaffney's penis, testicles, and a portion of his buttocks with onions, turnips, celery, and salt and pepper. He detailed the process of cooking the bits, referring to Gaffney's genitals as his... Monkey and peewees. In his confession to the DA, he added that he enjoyed eating Gaffney's penis, but that his testicles were too chewy, so he threw them in the toilet. Days later, Fish is sentenced to death in the electric chair. He stands up and thanks the judge for the sentence, which is scheduled to be meted out in less than a month. Fish tells a reporter on the way out of the courtroom, quote, What a thrill it will be to die in the electric chair. It will be the supreme thrill the only one I haven't tried. Fish further admits to the murder of Francis McDonnell, the boy in the tree. He says he would have butchered the boy for his meat too, but was spooked by a sound and ran. He also admits to other potential murders, including the torture of Thomas Kedden in Delaware and an unnamed African-American boy in Delaware. The murders are only potential, because though Fish admits to torturing the boys with knives and badly injuring them, he didn't stick around to see if they actually died. Lucky for them, considering the horror Billy Gaffney was revisited with. Dempsey fights tooth and nail for appeals on Fish's behalf, going so far as to personally ask the then-governor of New York, Herman Lehman, for clemency on Fish's behalf. 
His last-ditch effort is to make an appeal to Layman that fish should be kept alive, in a tank, simply to study him as a method of prevention should other such animals start stalking the dark alleys of New York. Governor Layman listens to Dempsey start to finish, says nothing, and simply walks away. A silent angel can speak without words, after all. In the twilight hours between January 16th and January 17th of 1936, Albert Fish steps into the death house at Ossessing Prison and never steps out. His last meal is the lunch he had on January the 16th, a T-bone steak. He was too afraid of dying to eat the fried chicken he'd ordered for dinner after that. There is a medium amount of concern the needles in his pelvis might short-circuit the electric chair, but it works just fine. New York State throws a fish fry. Albert Fish is a strange case, made even more bizarre by how uneven his temperament was across the board. His children and grandchildren stuck with him throughout the trial, never really doubting the crimes he committed, but sticking by him all the same. He spoke lovingly of them when given the floor, talking about how good of a dancer a grandchild of his was, a grandchild that was the same age as Grace. All of that in stark contrast, of course, to the monster he was in his shadow life. But perhaps the best person to sum up Albert Fish is Fish himself. I'll leave you with this, a description of the man in his own words, read by Tyler Bell, who worked so hard on this case. If you can't tell already, I'm slowly dragging Tyler from his fiction into the horrible realities of true crime. And he is made for this. Take a listen. Albert Fish. Brought back one more time before we all shove him back down where he should stay. Below the surface of reality, or out in that locally proverbial cold brick of hell that occasionally sends us. Something to truly fear, and accept as a standard for how horrible a human being can become. I am a man of passion. You don't know what that means unless you are my kind. At the orphanage where they put me just before Garfield was assassinated, there were some older boys that caught a horse in a slopping field. They got the horse up against a fence down at the bottom of the field and tied him up. An old horse. They put kerosene on his tail and lit it and cut the rope, and away went that old horse busting through fences to get away from the fire. But the fire went with him. That horse, that's me. That's the man of passion. The fire chases you and catches you, and then it's in your blood. And after that, it's the fire that has control, not the man. Blame the fire of passion for what Albert H. Fish has done. What has Albert H. Fish done? Sometimes I, myself, am not sure what is real and what is not. What I've really done and what are things I wanted to do and thought about doing so long that it got to be as if I had done them so that I remember them just as clearly as the real things. Just as clearly as that hot Sunday in June when I went to the window and whistled to that little grace bud and she stopped picking daisies and came in. Dark Topic is an 1159 media production. 
To support on Patreon, visit patreon.com slash darktopicpod. For merch, or just to reach out, visit darktopicpodcast.com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.